0: want some advice, you listen to this, hear some stories about travel, you get to know me a little bit, maybe you've learned some tips, some different insights, maybe you have a different perspective, maybe you share my views, but maybe you're looking for answers, you're looking for some guidance, maybe you didn't tune in for rambling, stream of conscious drivel, meaning of life, meanderings, or goofy sketches. You just wanted listicle, bulleted, top five, point blank, do's and don'ts, cheat sheet. Yeah? Is that what you want? Is that what you need? Well, here's some advice for you. Never trust an Indian. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on, hold up. Stop. No, that is not my advice, and that is not my view. The statement just uttered does not express the views of the speaker. For the record, I would formally like to declare that J. Allen Schneider, being of sound body, though questionably sound mind, do not endorse or support that point of view. I am not telling you never to trust an Indian. What I am saying is that this is the advice I received on multiple occasions from multiple individuals Who were all Indian. Throughout my time in India, I couldn't believe how many times Indian people would tell me not to trust other Indians. I became so puzzled by the frequency at which well intentioned Indians were insulting the honesty and integrity of their fellow countrymen. At one point, I wondered if this was some crazy riddle to solve. Wait, you're telling me to never trust an Indian, but you yourself are Indian? then I should not trust you, which means I should not take your advice, so I should trust an Indian, which means I should take your advice, not... Well, maybe what I'm saying is that when lying under a tree in a hot desert afternoon next to a one-eyed camel, the mind does begin to wander with some Inception-like results. Prior to setting off on my backpacking adventures, I had, based on all sound advice and guidance, purchased a chain to wrap around my backpack and and in my quick soul layover, I dropped some wand on a lock that I purchased in an open-air market. The idea that throughout my travels, when it seemed appropriate, I could chain up my backpack to either prevent unwanted access or removal. Clearly, I didn't chain it to the roof of the bus when I entered India. As it happened, I hadn't yet used my crude lock-and-chain system in all my months on the road, except as extra weight in my pack, which was either making me stronger or slowly damaging my spine. When I finally got on that first night train in India, exhausted from a lack of sleep, tired from my challenging and infuriating arrival, I was just finally ready to rest once the many hours late train finally arrived. I climbed into my upper berth, ready to pass out. But then I noticed all the other passengers, Indian passengers, I was the only Westerner, were all locking up their luggage, chaining their bags and suitcases to the berths or the bars or wherever they could secure them. I felt silly not following suit, so I dug out my lock and chain and did the same. One day after arriving in Varanasi, a rickshaw driver began giving me lots of advice on how to stay safe in his country a laundry list of do's and don'ts. Never accept food from an Indian on a train. When you go to the toilet on a train, take your bags with you. At one point, he said, And when you sleep on the train, make sure your bag is under your head so you will know if someone is trying to steal it. And then he looked at me and said, This is India, as if no further explanation or convincing was needed. In Agra, my pedicab driver warned me never to trust taxi drivers. Don't let them make any stops, and don't pay for guides. Another time, when some man came up to me and started talking, I I honestly don't remember what it was about, a bunch of kids came running up to me and said, Don't listen to that man. He tells lies. On another occasion, I was staying in a guest house, and the owner came to me and talked about how I needed to be careful any time an Indian was talking to me, and how he, an Indian, never let Indians stay at his guest house, and some owners put up signs saying no Indians. When I was in Amritsar, a Sikh man told me, and I wrote his exact words in my journal, so I'm quoting here, never trust an Indian, not even me. Those words echoed in my head as I woke up three days later, naked in a Bombay alleyway, my money and belongings gone. No, okay, I'm kidding, that last part didn't really happen. The Sikh man and I shared some tea and we had a great conversation. But I wanted to stop and make the point that despite this advice I frequently received, and yes, I realized the last episode focused on someone trying to steal my backpack and a handful of hustlers trying to get a few extra rupee out of me, India is filled with wonderful, kind, and generous people. I had so many great experiences and memories because of the kindness of the Indians who took great care of me and sometimes went out of their way to help me or to make sure I was okay. For those of you who have been following along on this journey and haven't missed a single episode, you may remember my conversation with Justin and Dan in which Justin commented one of the most important things he's learned about traveling the globe is that the world isn't a scary place, that people are kind, giving, and very helpful. And I couldn't agree more. So, I want to once again unequivocally say that I had so many positive experiences with very wonderful and hospitable people in India. And I don't just mean giving points for not trying to steal my stuff or scam me, but going out of their way to help me. I mean, for one, it was the Indians who were warning me and cautioning me. So clearly, they wanted to protect me and make sure I had a good experience in their country. One night, I was waiting on a train platform. I took a lot of overnight trains in India. And a policeman came up to me and said, Be careful. Be very careful. If you have any problems, come to us. This was weeks after my ticket scam incident, so I didn't think it made much sense to bring up that grievance. I thanked the policeman and walked a ways down the dark platform. A few minutes later, he came up to me and said, Please stand by the tea stand, in the light. And don't make friends with anyone. And remember my first night in India? Well, that evening, as I stood on the dark platform, waiting for a train that didn't seem to exist, A man came up to me, started a conversation, and let me know the train had been delayed, and we had a very welcoming conversation. When the train was pulling in, he told me to wait and which car to board and made sure I didn't get lost in the shuffle. When I was in Jodhpur, I befriended a kid, and I told him about my plans to get on a train to my next destination. I had picked a train in time, and he said, Oh no, that train is not for tourists. That is the local train. Only uncultured types ride it. I appreciated the boy's desire to protect me from the uncultured types who may not know their Bach from their Brahms or their Monet from their Manet, but it's a reminder of how many people came up to me and tried to protect or care for me. There's the hospitality of somebody welcoming you, and this certainly happened plenty in India and in all of my travels. Great conversations, people welcoming me into their towns and homes and schools. But there's something quite touching about the protective gestures. The, you are not from around here, and you may not know the dangers, so I want to make sure you are safe. Anyways, rather than go on and on about these generous acts in defense of a clueless adventurer, or the many positive moments and interactions I had with the locals throughout my journey, I'll tell you one example that sticks with me. As I mentioned, I've rode a lot of trains in India, and that's quite the experience. I must say, there's something about Indian train travel. Just love it. While on overnight trains, I would have a reserved seat, which would convert into a berth for sleeping at night, For most of the day journeys, it was a bit of a free-for-all, crowding into overstuffed cars, usually with my full pack. For one leg of the journey, I first had to battle the line or mob of people to get a ticket, and then use all my logic, deductive reasoning, and gut instinct to figure out from which platform my train would depart. I'd asked a number of people uh, multiple times, but things didn't seem to match up. Finally, I found a platform and a train destination that seemed to be a fit, And though the time was a little bit different than I expected, at least I felt good about my prospects of making it to my next destination. The platform was crowded and the train already packed, so I pushed my way through the scrum with the rest of them and into a standing room-only spot. It would be several hours, but at least I was on the train and I knew I could tough it out. I mean, this is all part of the adventure, right? This is exactly the kind of thing that would make for a good story years later, right? Anyway, the train sat for a while, an Indian man, with a seat, Saw me and came over to me. Would you like to sit down? This was a generous offer, but my prideful youth plus my cocky young, this ain't nothing but a thang, ways repeatedly declined his offer. I could stop the story here and it would fall in line with my point that time after time Indians were kind, generous, and helpful. But I'm not done. In spite of the conflicting voices in my head trying to figure out if I'd later regret the decision to decline the seat in my fourth and fifth hour of the journey, I thanked him again but firmly said no. Then he asked where I was going. I responded. Then his eyes got wide. The train started to move. He looked out of the train across the platform. He looked back to me. He looked out again. He grabbed his bag from his seat, grabbed my head, and said, You should go on that train. As the train we were on continued to move, we both pushed our way out the open door, jumped off, and sprint across the platform to the train across the way, which was itself preparing to depart. We got on huffing and puffing, and he said, this train is faster. That train would take six or seven hours. This one will take four. So that guy? Yeah, <laughs> he saved me a couple of hours. Oh, and we got seats. My savior departed halfway through the journey and to hop on a local train to get to where he was originally intending to go, and my other seatmates, a Sikh man and a professor, spent the journey talking and drinking too much chai, and and eating snacks with every wallow that passed. I'll go back to what Justin said in an earlier episode. Traveling showed him the world is not a scary place. Sure, bad things can happen anywhere, and, I mean, I tell you about my problems and hardships because conflict and challenge often make up an interesting story. It may not help that humans are horrible at hearing about one or two events, and then we extrapolate that to, to make wild generalizations. Humans just suck with statistics, placing too much weight on what are probably anomalies. I mean, yeah, it may have helped our species survive over the millennia, but it's important to remember the world is not a scary and dangerous place, and that definitely includes India. So if you came here looking for tips, you want my advice, then how about this? Go ahead. Trust an Indian. But maybe verify. Welcome back to all of you great members of the Jay Luck Club, presented as always by Honey Roasted T-shirts. And as always, I am Jay, happy to have you with me as I continue my memory journey, rereading, reliving and reflecting on my trip 2 decades ago. Not sure if you're a member of the club? Well, if you're listening to this podcast, then you most certainly are a member in good standing. Don't forget to check out HoneyRoastedT-Shirts.com for more pictures and extras. Before we get started, dearest of members, I have a question for you. Have you downloaded your copy of Dalbot Diddy yet? That's right, for 99 cents, or an equivalent in your country, you can have your very own digital copy through iTunes or Amazon Music. Ownership of the song is not a requirement for membership, of course. Membership is completely free. And I'm happy to have you along for the journey. But if you have the time or the desire and the pennies, rupees, ringgit, or baht to spare, go buy yourself a copy and support the musical stylings of The J. Luck Club and Bobby Hennebury. Alternatively, because I never want money to come between us, dear members, if you have access to a streaming service, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Prime, and others, then go ahead and stream it. Like, maybe a thousand times? I don't know. Wake up in the morning... Play a few doll ditties to get yourself going. Then maybe on a coffee or meal break, play it a few more times. Maybe as a part of your workout, your meditation practice. Wherever you're into, just work it in. Just set a reminder to play it about 50 times a day and show your support for the J-Luck Club. Other ways to show your support? Write a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Spread the word. Share. Anyway, when we last left off, I had finally made it to India. I drank chai along the banks of the Ganga River, made my way to see the Taj Mahal, headed up to hang with the Sikhs in Amritsar after making a brief stop at some erotic temple carvings in Kajuraho, and of course meditated with the monks in Dharamsala. My time in India was varied, rich, and rewarding, but I was heading to Rajasthan to check out the desert. I take you now to an internet cafe that, well, well, I was sending this email from Bangkok after having returned from my final two weeks in India. But, anyways. Here it is. Date. Wednesday, December 20th, 2000. From Jay Schneider. Subject. Joe Camel Comrades, I've returned to the oppressive kingdom of Siam. Though having been spared the colonial yoke of imperialist European powers, capitalist bourgeois opportunists still abound, exploiting the workers and oppressing the peasants, poisoning minds and thwarting the revolution. But fear not, the great unfailing wisdom of the party will heroically lead the masses to the proletariat dictatorship under which all will finally be free and equal. I'll explain this. I promise I will. The final two weeks of my India trip, on the surface, could seem pretty straightforward. I traveled through Rajasthan, then headed to Calcutta to fly out. But this was made all the more interesting due to two factors. First, I had no business doing all I did with such an absurdly low amount of money. Second, I went to Calcutta from Jaipur, Rajasthan's capital, via Bombay. Those of you needing some geography assistance can feel free to take some time and look at an atlas. The Money Issue In past mailings, I've mentioned my meager means and limited funds, so first off, I should like to clarify this point a bit. I've had a bad habit, when traveling, of carrying too much money with me. This habit, I decided, was not a good one to take with me to India, a place infamous for its scams, theft, and for other things which make travel oh-so character-building. So prior to my departure for the subcontinent, I took a reasonable amount of cash and traveler's checks for a couple of weeks in Nepal and a few months in India and a bit for emergency, leaving the rest and my credit card in my safe deposit box in Bangkok. Interruption. I must say it is so cool to have a safe deposit box in a foreign country. Sure, it's no Swiss bank account, and admittedly, I sometimes just store my dirty laundry in it, but it's still really cool, and I can say things like, I have the negatives in the safe deposit box in Bangkok, in case you get any funny ideas. Note, this is true. I have incriminating pictures of Ava naked in front of Himeji Castle, why she would do such a thing, I'll never quite understand. So I left with more than adequate budget and spent two months in Nepal instead of two weeks. Time and money very well spent, though. And when time for India came around, the money was understandably low. Now, India's a cheap country for travel, and I could have spent many months hanging out in some cool places, but my goal wasn't just to go for as long as possible on as little as possible. I had big plans, and things like money and lack of it weren't going to get in my way the power of positive thinking. Off to the Indian state of Rajasthan. Really cool forts and palaces, colorful turbans on the men with funky mustaches, and what we've all been waiting for, camels. Yes, I did my camel safari, and it was so cool I'm thinking of taking up smoking. Joe Camel lives. I spent three days and two nights in the Tar Desert, which straddles the India-Pakistan border, though my camel was a bit of a slacker and had a bad eye and stepped on my toe. This, I believe, had nothing to do with his lame eye. It was personal. The scenery was spectacular, in that way that barren nothingness can be, and I slept in the open air on the dunes under the stars, and a few blankets, winter's cold in the desert. Camel treks are heavily marketed for tourists in Rajasthan, so I was a little worried that it'd be a bit like Disneyland, but it wasn't at all. And while riding a camel through the desert sells it to tourists, and it's great for telling the folks back home, as I'm doing right now, What was most enjoyable for me were the things that weren't necessarily so unique, such as cooking over an open fire and sleeping out in the open under a full moon. These are things I've done before, and it's my desire to do again and again in life. Each night, I went to sleep giddy and giggling, having one of my frequent damn, my life is so good, flashes, and woke several times rewarded by views of constellations and a full moon. Also, in the late, quiet desert night, I discovered that the sound of urine hitting the sand is Really loud. Okay, and what was the icing on the camel cake? What made this already wonderful trip so much more unique and cool? After a long negotiating session, a complex and elaborate package was arranged. I got the camel safari, two free nights accommodation, the safari was booked through the guest house, one free meal, and as many cups of chai as I could drink while I stayed with them. In return, they got a small amount of money, and get this, my watch. Trading a watch for a ride on a one-eyed camel, even a toe-crushing camel, is so cool. It's sort of in that having a safe deposit box in Bangkok sense of the word. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, money low and butt sore, and drinking a lot of chai, I relaxed around the guest house and was approached for more negotiations. I thought they were after a draft pick. I was offered a job. I went with one of the staff to the city of Jodhpur, from which many tourists stop on their way to Jaisalmer. That's where I did the camel safari. My job was to tell other travelers about their hotel and camel safari package. For this, they would pay for my expenses and give me 200 rupees per day. I didn't like the thought of going to the other side and becoming one of the touts I despise so much, but I have no objections to advertising their hotel and safari as they were good products. Besides, you know my money situation, and My plan had been to hole up in Jaisalmer and doing not much of anything for a few days. Anywho, I had fun meeting loads of travelers, ran into friends I'd made elsewhere, met a guy who bicycled through China, Pakistan, and now into India. Hmm, got me thinking. And I was very honest and forthcoming in what I was doing. My employers would have been so disappointed, I'm sure. I only did this one and a half days because I wanted to get on the road again, but at least now I've got that touting, or I mean public relations and advertising experience that employers love so much. Jaipur is home to a number of forts, palaces, and really cool astronomy instruments, but the most enjoyable is running into a friend I'd met in Delhi —her name's Tina, I don't think I mentioned her— and going to see a Hindi movie, a Bollywood blockbuster, Mission Kashmir. Action, song, dance, tears, romance, I can see why it was one of the hits of the year. But had I seen one of the hundred other, hits of the year, I may not have been able to tell the difference between them. During the intermission, the man in front of us turned around and started speaking Hindi. When he realized we couldn't understand, he spoke English, and asked why, if we couldn't understand the language, we'd come to see a Hindi movie. I answered that while I couldn't understand Hindi, I had no trouble understanding the movie. Well, that's not entirely true. I could understand the basic plot. Here it goes. Super cool army leader's son dies. Super cool guy, wearing a mask goes on a mission to kill Muslim terrorists. One of the men killed was survived by a son. Sad wife of super cool guy suggests adopting an orphan. They do. Orphan has some issues, having witnessed a bloodbath in which his father was gunned down by a masked man. Finally, in a dream, in which the super cool guy's son appears and dances around his underwear, and everyone becomes happy and they all play cricket. One night, the now happy boy, orphan boy, not underwear boy, finds the masks, puts two and two together, and the mask on, and decides to try and kill super cool guy. Failing, he runs out the window into the darkness. Time passes, we know this because super cool guy has a different hairstyle and a mustache. The orphan boy, now a super cool guy in his own right, returns as part of a Muslim terrorist group, etc. Sorry, we're not even at intermission yet and it goes on and on. Eventually after much singing and dancing and the strangest moments, it all works out and they're a happy family again minus the mother whom the orphan mistakenly killed while trying to knock off his foster dad, super cool guy. My point is, I had no difficulty following the plot, but as one raised in a different culture, I couldn't understand the spontaneous outbreaks of singing and dancing around trees and fake gardens. Cultural differences, I guess. After leaving Jaipur, I would be spending 55 out of 65 hours on a train, and I decided I might want something to read. Checking all the bookstores, my budget wouldn't cover anything more than an Archie comic, and Those were overpriced and wouldn't last me long. What I needed was the maximum amount of pages for the least amount of rupees. Content was of little importance. Finally, I stumbled upon a store with dusty and worn books, which looked promising. Oh yeah, on the window was painted Soviet books. Communist essays, literature, and propaganda of all sorts could be found at very reasonable prices. The Soviet Union, A Successful Future, was a particular bargain. I stocked up on the history of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, what is the party, and the theory of revolution for a piddling 30 rupees. And now the Comrades intro all makes sense. It all comes together. You may be wondering why I didn't go directly to Calcutta, but instead traveled hundreds of kilometers out of my way to Mumbai, or Bombay, for only a matter of hours. No, this time the answer is not as simple as erotic temple carvings. I can't really explain it other than to say I just had to go. It's Bollywood, Home of the Stars, Glamour, Glitz, and not to mention the Indian Mafia. But it's more than that. It's sort of a calling from my childhood. I remember standing in line outside my second grade classroom next to JP and looking through a window at a globe and making stupid second grade jokes which all ended in Bombay. And this was enough to send us into hysterics. I really don't know why, but I suppose it requires a second-grade level kind of logic and humor. Anywho, I don't expect you to understand, and I'm not sure why I'm choosing to share this childhood memory with you all. Something about actually going to this place with almost 20 years ago had no meaning to me other than a faraway place whose name would induce laughter. Well, it was just something I had to do, even if for only a matter of hours. And the simple explanation? Why would I spend 55 out of 65 hours on a train just to catch a glimpse of a place? Because I'm that cool. See earlier definitions of cool above. Forty train hours after Bombay and a day and a night in Calcutta later, I left India with a 100 rupees in my pocket. It would have been 120, but the security guy who searched me at the airport suggested I give him something so he could buy himself some tea. He was so cute with his toothless grin, I couldn't resist making my final donation to India. Final thoughts? I'll rip off and misquote and modify to fit my purposes a bit from William Sutcliffe's book, Are You Experienced? It's a great read, by the way, but I don't have the book with me anymore, so I'm making this up by memory. The setup. Two fresh first-time travelers arrive in a dormitory in India and find an experienced, cooler traveler lying about. Note. I told you I don't like to do accents, but I do need to change voices so at least you understand who's talking. I'm not going to do a British accent as the travelers were. Hi. Peace. Wow, it's really hot in here, isn't it? Let me guess. You're new here, right? Yeah, just off the plane. How long you been here? Oh, (laughs) long enough, man. Long enough. Long enough to love it and hate it. So, what's that, like a week or something? Merry Christmas and Happy New Year for all those to whom it applies. I'll be hanging on the beaches of Thailand for a while with a Berkeley friend, Chucky, and another friend I'm going to try and blackmail, Ava. Until next time, Jay, on holiday till 2001, Schneider. Sidetrack story time to elaborate on my, my second grade story with JP, or John Paul. When I was in elementary school in second grade, my friend John Paul and I were in a classroom looking at a globe. Somehow our eyes locked in on Bombay. I don't remember which one of us started it, but if one of us asked some benign question like, have you seen my pencil, the other would reply, oh yes, it's in Bombay. Hey Jay, where are you going? I'm going to the playground. In Bombay, Again, I'm fuzzy on the details or context around the origin of our shtick, but it never failed to get a laugh out of each of us simply by adding in Bombay to the end of our sentences. It was the innocent G-rated version of adding in bed to the end of a fortune in a fortune cookie. John Paul moved away and we lost contact, and I don't remember much else from our brief friendship, but I do remember our geography-induced guffaws. But back to India. When I had first passed through Delhi, I purchased my plane ticket back to Thailand. Though I wasn't yet sure of my exact India itinerary, I estimated that I might be running out of funds around December, and so I may as well plan to be back in Thailand for Christmas. Anyway, I thought it would be best to buy the ticket on my first pass through Delhi, reasoning that one, by having a fixed end date, I could better plan and prioritize on how to spend my remaining time and money, and two, I should probably buy a plane ticket while I still had the funds to do so. I've already hit you over the head too much with my budget constraints in previous episodes. You, dear listeners, already got the full story, whereas my mailing list recipients got pieces of the puzzle spread out over multiple emails. But I will mention two ways in which it impacted my Indian adventure. There were three of us on the camel trek. In addition to my guide, my partners in crime for the journey were two German girls, medical students who were taking the term off. We got on well together during our time, of course, the trip was incredible because of the landscape and sleeping under the stars and cooking food over an open fire. I mean, these are experiences I enjoy anywhere I am in the world, so this was truly a special experience. But as I said before, and you can say it with me, it's about the people. Those two girls also made the trip and the experience great. Anyway, when the trek was over, we all had dinner together. The girls had hired a car and a driver which would take them to Bikaner and then to Jaipur and asked if I wanted to travel with them. And I really wanted to. They were nice, and we really hit it off well, and we were having a great time. But I was at a point in my journey where I had no flexibility. Being low on funds, I had already purchased all my train tickets, and my schedule was pretty rigid. It was frustrating because, for a vast majority of my trip, I had such freedom to go in any direction at any given moment. It's such a liberating feeling, yet, suddenly this opportunity rose, and it was at the one point in my trip where I had the least flexibility. I didn't have any wiggle room to change things up. So sadly, I had to turn down their generous offer. I really wondered what they said in private conversation after that. They were two young, smart, and attractive 20-something women offering a young, free, and single guy their company, and I said, (laughs) no. Anyway, I was able to have an amazing six weeks in India and fill it with so many adventures and experiences I wanted to have, but This was one I unfortunately had to pass on. Again, my time in India, as well as my trip as a whole, was fairly open and free, but contrasting that with my constrained situation was more of a reminder that as much as possible in life, I wanted to try and set myself so I would have my choices. Number two. But I've also said before, constraints can lead to creative solutions and interesting opportunities. My circumstances led me to wheeling and dealing and heavy negotiating, my accommodation, trek, and all the chai I could drink were some rupees and my watch. I said this in the email, and I'll say it again. It just thrills me to know that I traded a watch for a camel trek. I also hustled to earn a few more rupees and add some breathing room to my budget, and though it confirmed that I did not want to live life as a tout, the guy I befriended from that guest house, I guess he was my boss? Well, he took me to local eateries, introduced me to his friends, we went to food stalls and places I otherwise would not have ventured, and Again, it was an experience I wouldn't otherwise have had. It's a good memory. Okay, so Rajasthan is a beautiful region. I probably overused the term mind-blowing, but my lack of rich and varied descriptions of my genuine impressions doesn't make it any less accurate. The colors in the clothing, the cities themselves, Jaipur is known as the pink city and Jodhpur the blue city, the desert landscape, the forts, the facial hair of the local men, All of it created a scene and a backdrop to my adventure that at times just made it all seem unreal. The area was impressive and beautiful in its own right, but there's also the, and this could be a dangerous slope, exotic element of it all. And what I mean by that, since it's all relative, is it's simply a landscape, architecture, and overall scenery with which I was not familiar, at least in person. Much like after spending a couple of months in Southeast Asia, Kathmandu was so striking because of its contrast to where I'd just been. I remember when I arrived in Japan, wandering around the electric and crooked alleyways at night. It was new and exciting and so different from what I had experienced. The city in which I lived, Himeji, has the best castle in all of Japan. I'm happy to debate that topic with anyone another time, but it's really not my point here, and there's also really not a debate to be had. It's just a fact himeji Joe. my castle, was the best castle in all of Japan. You can't argue it, so don't even try. Himeji Castle is a beautiful castle, and I could see it every day from the classrooms of the school where I taught, and hardly a day went by where I didn't walk through the castle grounds on my way somewhere or coming back home after a long night out in the electric and crooked alleyways of my own city. But whether it's Tokyo or Bangkok or Kathmandu or even those erotic temple carvings of Kajuraho, you soon become accustomed to any setting and the environment just becomes normal. So there's two sides to this coin, two points I'm about to poorly make, but I'm sure a few episodes from now something will click and I'll realize what it was I was trying to say. This isn't a term paper or thesis, folks. On the one hand, it's good when an environment and the people in a culture no longer seem so, well, foreign. It's good when it becomes normal, because then you realize the food, the custom, the language that may have seemed strange is just normal. It's humans being humans doing their human things in their own human way, as we all do. And that's a great thing about travel or going to other places. It's just getting outside of your own bubble. On the other hand, or the other side of the coin, I forgot that was the metaphor to which I attached myself, when things become too normal, you may also become desensitized to some of the wonderful things around you. When I did live in Japan, as much as possible I tried to be present and appreciate the things around me, So even though it was just my ordinary, everyday life, I'd often forget I was living in Japan and stop being in awe of my surroundings. There are times I could snap myself out of it and stop and appreciate where I was. Maybe it was because I knew that I had an expiration date, so it was easier to do this. So where am I heading with all this? Well, not to give away the ending to this podcast series, because I still have about six episodes to go, but one of the biggest things I came away with from my entire trip was that what I casually label as travel, that is, all the places to which I journeyed and all the adventures entailed, wasn't really about the specific places I went. Really, travel is a state of mind, a way of being, being curious and open to explore, having great adventures, trying new things, and connecting with and learning about other people and places. Deep down, what I was seeking didn't require a passport, and if anything, what I learned on the road is that I should have the same perspective in my own town. Wherever I settle down, I should always be open, curious, and have a desire to explore. However, I think this gets to the two sides of the coin thing, but now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's more of a balancing act, maybe a a Walenda-type tightrope walking stunt. I've totally lost control of this metaphor. Just, Just stick with me. However, wherever you are, inevitably your life will normalize, and you will sink into routines, and you'll end up in your rut or your bubble. I've been fortunate enough to have been to many places on this earth, and I'm actively connected with friends and colleagues around the globe. I keep an eye on world events and news and consider myself fairly internationally minded, but still, it's unavoidable that I'll get stuck in my bubble. And one of the best ways to burst that bubble, shake things up and ensure my confirmation bias doesn't get the best of me and that I don't lose sight of my blind spots, is to physically change your location. Travel may be a state of mind, but to experience anything to the fullest requires all the senses. Reading about events in Kyrgyzstan is a good way to keep up with events in Central Asia, and chatting with a friend in Cairo is a great way to stay connected with what's going on in Egypt, but nothing replaces actually being physically present in a place. I don't know if I was thinking about any of this when I was in a train station in Jaipur. I had to head east to Calcutta, about 1500, kilometers away to catch my flight to Bangkok, which left in a few days. It's about 25 or 26-hour train ride across the country Again. I don't know if I was consciously thinking about any of this, but I didn't head east. I chose to take a train south, rode it for 20 hours, and then caught another train, spending over 30 hours to finally get to Calcutta. All that to walk the streets, breathe the air, and be amongst the people of that place that until that time had been a dot on a globe, the tagline at the end of a, an elementary school gag, just to be there. John Paul, I don't know where you are, but I hope you're doing well. And I can tell you this, my friend. 20 years ago, I was certainly happy and doing well. In Bombay. That's right, travel is a state of mind. And while international adventures may not always be possible, you don't need your passport or a plane ticket to get yourself to a different city, town, or even a neighborhood. Take your open and curious mind to a new street you haven't walked, a trail you haven't hiked, a lake to which you've never skipped a stone. Get a new perspective. But when you get back to the warm confines of your bubble, head on over to Honey shirtscom for pictures and extras. Once again, a big thanks to Honey Roasted T-Shirts for their support. Honey Roasted T-Shirts. They don't make t-shirts, but if they did, you can be sure they'd be Honey Roasted. Don't forget to download your very own copy of the Dollbot Diddy. Buy it or stream it wherever you get your digital music. It's one of the many ways you can be an active member of the J Luck Club but you don't have to spend your hard-earned pennies, rupees, rupiah, yen. You can also just tell a friend, drop me a line, subscribe to the podcast, write a review, or just be curious and open and experience the world around you in whatever way is possible for you. Can you believe it? I'm done with South Asia. Heading back to Bangkok to not only see a familiar land, but to see some familiar faces. In my email, I signed off for the year, promising to write again after I'd crossed over into 2001. If you've been following this replay of my journey as it unfolds, you'll notice I'll be taking a similar break. I've got some conversations with j Club members planned, and I need to put together a few things. But don't you worry, I'll be back. There's more of this story to tell. And if you've discovered this podcast sometime after its initial release, then there won't be any gap, and you can just go to episode 14 right after this one completes. Either way, if you listen to this podcast, or if you've read the emails and visited the blog, If you've sung along to Dalbot Diddy, or maybe you've heard that story about that time I battled a hammock in Koh Samui, well, you just might be a member of the J-Luck Club. Thank you as always for staying tuned to journal extras. I'll go ahead and read a few entries from my journal. December 3rd, Delhi again. Bus arrives around 4 a.m. Glad to be arriving to a familiar place, but everything I know is closed. I ring and knock on several places, but they're either full or there's no answer. I finally give in, go find a tout, and find a place a bit random, but for two nights, it'll do. Go to sleep. Up, out, dog bite. Oh yeah, I tell that story in another episode. December 5th, train to Jodhpur. No need to rush, so I laze in bed for a bit. I read, I pack, check out by noon. I eat. I go have a frustrating email session, everything down. Yeah, that happened a lot, where I'd go to an internet cafe, say, hey, now's the time I can catch up on emails or write something, but I'd write one of these epic entries And I'd be 90% done, and it would freeze, it would crash, it wouldn't connect, and I would have lost all that work. I think once I was able to print out what I'd written, and then I retyped it later, but usually I just lost it. Oh yeah, here it is. Long internet session, only to have Excite Bomb. I I print out my mass email. I print out my email so I can retype it later. Uh, Rough days of old technology and connectivity. Go to Old Delhi and go see the Red Fort. I meet a French-Canadian named Jonathan and Tina from Finland. We wander around, we rickshaw back, we go have dinner, meet another girl, Jennifer. Good conversation. December 6th, Jodhpur. Arrive, a bit chilly. On station overpass, I glimpse fort on a hill above the city. Whoa, so cool. I'm in Rajasthan, glad to be here. Wander the old city's maze of streets after checking my bag in a cloakroom and happily shutting off the touts and wallahs. The streets are still asleep. Stores not yet open. It's nice for walking. It's peaceful. Amidst the cramped houses and crooked alleyways are occasional shots of the fort. So cool. I finally hike up to the fort itself. I eat popcorn while worrying about the entrance fee. It's only 50 rupees. This puts me in better spirits. Stroll, wander, absorb the atmosphere, eavesdrop on tour guides' explanations, stare off into the desert. I like this place. While chilling with my own bad self, some guy approaches me. I'm standoffish, of course, but he has a guest house in Jaisalmer. 40 rupee rooms, no hassle, free ride from the station. Hmm, foreshadowing. That's the place I stayed and that started my journey. December 9th. Woke up several times in the night, but quite happy to be conscious of where I was. Great sky, amazing stars. Cold, but I'm warm under the blankets. Sunrise, the camel silhouettes. Wow, this is unreal. Chai and chapati for breakfast. Load up, we're back on the go. December 12th. Touting and get outing. <laughs> I loved how I even titled my journal entries. I don't know who I was writing to. It entertained me. Wake up, go meet R. R, that's the guy who worked at the guest house. He and a friend take me around to all the street stalls for a true Indian breakfast, as he calls it. I must admit, he's feeding me. December 13th, the pink city. Difficulty sleeping, too much chai. Rested, I venture out, wander into the old city, and I run into Tina, the girl I met in Delhi. We're both happy for the company. We wander, go to a museum, chat. It's a good way to spend the day. We buy movie tickets for tomorrow. This is gonna be good. December 14th, head out, see observatory, drink chai, chat with old men, explore a bit. Today I'll just chill and enjoy. I check out books, but they're too pricey. My solution? A Soviet bookstore. Cheap book. I made the history of the Communist Party in the USSR, and some propaganda. What a great way to pass time on the train. Oh yeah, I got a roommate, Ron from Israel. This day, I wandered outside my guest house, and this kid came up to me, this Israeli traveler came up to me, and he said, hey, is this a good guest house? I said, yeah. He said, do you want to split a room? And it was so weird, because on the one hand, this could be a horrible decision, but It was a moment where I just had a gut instinct. That was okay. So, anyways, this guy Ron and I, we split a room because it was convenient. Saved us both a bit of money. Cool guy. And didn't kill me in my sleep, so it all worked out. Oh, I didn't kill him in his sleep either. Yeah, we had breakfast the next day. Two Israeli girls he knew. We all went out together. Uh, Here we go. We did it. uh, December 16th. In Bombay. Mumbai's cool. Wandermore. Feet tired head back to station. I wrote a song, still working on it. Unrelated to my travels, so I won't share it with you. Tibetan man wants help writing a letter. I'm pretty sure it's a scam, but it'll entertain me. We go for tea. I write a letter to his French friends asking for help. He tells me his sob story. Oh, I get it. He's not asking me for help. He's asking me for help to write a letter in which he's talking about his hardships and how much he needs help. Uh Aha! you probably think, why, that stupid foreigner didn't realize I was in trouble. Uh, catch a train, sitting with an English guy and four people from Bangladesh in a compartment. Nice guys. We chat. We sleep. We laugh. It's a long train ride. Calcutta. Get a bed at the Salvation Army Dormitory. Find some food, wander, drift. I buy a book on Kajuraho, as well as a Hindi in 30 days book. I don't think I learned Hindi 30 days later. Sold my lonely planet. Now I feel rich and so, so much lighter. And on December 19th, I head back to Bangkok. Never accept Indian from a food on a train. Under the wire last minute deadline bonus for you. I mentioned in this episode how pink curious is a key part of travel or the state of mind of just a way of being, well I was talking with a friend today and got a good little tidbit to share with you. So there's a lot of limitations we have on maybe being able to travel or not travel or what we can do or or where we can go. And you know I talked about in my travel how I had some budget constraints during my Indian leg of the trip. You know the best thing about curiosity is? It's free. Thank you for staying tuned to Journal Extras, folks. Talk to you next time. None of this will be on the exam. I'm And play again.